0: Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 121. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to that passage and read along as I read our sermon text, and I'll invite you, if you're able to do so, to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Psalm 121, give ear to the reading of God's Word. It says, A song of a sense. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the superscription above uh, the psalm is part of the inspired text, and you'll notice it just says uh, a song of ascents. This is actually the second in a string of 15 straight psalms going from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 that are given that same title or designation. Many of the commentators believe that the ascents, so to speak, it's a plural that the psalmist has in mind or they say they're most likely the various pilgrimages that the faithful Israelites would make to Jerusalem, uh, the, the religious feast they had three times a year, the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost or first fruits, and the Feast of Tabernacles or the Harvest. And Those are mentioned in detail uh, in short order in Exodus chapter 23. And so it's thought that these ascents were those times of pilgr- pilgrimages, the, the city of Jerusalem, that where they had to go, is where the temple was located and it was situated on a hill. So you had to ascend up to the hill of the Lord. Uh, sometimes we called it Mount, Mount Zion. And so the pilgrims had to go up or ascend that hill in order to go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. So they think that these psalms were in some way related to that trip. Maybe they would sing them or recite them on the way or even as they were going up, up the hill to Jerusalem. Now, so... This psalm has often been thought of as a pilgrimage psalm or a traveler's psalm. Others think of it as a kind of a, this isn't the word they would have used, but a a foxhole psalm. And the reason for that I think is probably obvious. The main theme in this psalm is God's providential care and protection. God's watchful protection over a weary traveler. You think about somebody on a physical pilgrimage, you know, we... We don't really identify with that too much. We drive our cars here and maybe take 10 or 15 minutes. They walked. They had to walk uh, over rough terrain. No doubt they could encounter a number of difficulties or dangers along the way. And so you, you could say in some sense, thinking about how long these people had to go, that every time they took that pilgrimage, it was sort of a reminder of the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel before they came to the promised lands. They were almost walking in a sense in the footsteps of their fathers in the faith that they had endured in those days of Moses, those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And um, you might be sitting here thinking, well, what does it have to do with us? We don't take pilgrimages to church. Uh, we might take vacations, but it's not quite the same thing. What does it have to do with believers today? We don't worship at one earthly temple anymore. Uh, we don't need to make pilgr- pilgrimages to go to church to worship God at a specific location, you might remember Jesus talking to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four. Uh, he said to her, "Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain—he's talking about uh, Jerusalem, the, the mountain of, of Israel—neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Uh, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know." For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Uh, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, you know, she was in Samaria, and they had their own high place, so to speak. It wasn't Jerusalem, it wasn't the temple of the Lord, they had their own their own place of worship. And so Jesus is kind of cutting off the argument there. He's saying, you know, you, you think you worship here. Uh, others think we should worship just in Jerusalem. But he tells her the hour was coming, and it now is, when neither on this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So we don't take a pilgrimage. We don't have to worship God in that one place as they had to do in their time. And so this, even though that's the case, this psalm of ascent still has a lot to teach us about a life spent walking with God by faith in Jesus Christ. In his book, Learning to Love the Psalms, Robert Godfrey uh, writes this. He says, In Old Testament times, the journey was a real trip over difficult terrain to a physical city. For Christians in the New Testament, there is still a journey. We are still pilgrims on the way to the heavenly Jerusalem the psalm is as much for us as it was for them. You may not feel like you're on a pilgrimage, but you are. The New Testament is replete with references uh, that, that speak of the Christian life in those same kind of terms. It likens our life in Christ in this world to the pilgrimage in the wilderness wanderings. Uh, every believe, Everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is in some sense a pilgrim or a stranger in this world This world, you know, is not our true home. Now, there's a reason that, you know, very often all the comforts that we enjoy in this life, every, every so often, maybe more often than in times past, we get these reminders that this is not it. That this is, no matter how good things might get on your best day, this is not our ultimate home. That's why, for example, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 12 says this. He says, Beloved, I urge you, As sojourners and exiles, or your translation might say pilgrims and strangers, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter addresses the church as sojourners And exiles. The writer of Hebrews follows suit in Hebrews 13, 14 where he says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We have a permanent home, but it's not here. Likewise, Philippians 3 verses 20 to 21, Paul says very similarly. He says, Paul writes, but our citizenship is where? Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we're citizens of the United States, everybody in this room that I know of. But where's your ultimate, your real citizenship? Your permanent citizenship is in heaven. And we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, from there. And so this psalm and the others in this section really are given to help us on our way that we might worship the Lord Jesus Christ, learn to trust in him as our keeper, while we walk through this veil of tears on our way to our permanent home in heaven. And so I want to look at three things from the psalm. And the first of those things is the psalmist asks a question. It's kind of a rhetorical question he asks himself, but he really asks it for our benefit as well. He asks the question, where does your help come from? Look at verse 1. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, commentators are somewhat divided over uh, how this verse is to be understood. Uh, The King James Version, for instance, renders this not as a question, but as a declaration of sorts. As a statement, it says in the King James, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. So he's not saying, I look up to the hills, uh, where's my help come from? In the King James, it puts it more like, I look up to the hills from where my help comes from, uh, so to speak. Uh, it's as if the psalmist is looking up to the hills for his help. Uh, others think the hills that the psalmist is looking up to, one writer says that those hills represent the dangers and difficulties the psalmist will face. In other words, on the pilgrimage, he's walking, looks, looks up at those hills and he thinks of it, you know, if any of you have ever gone hiking, some of you I know have hiked some great uh, heights, you you look at it as the obstacle, the thing you have to overcome to get to the top. Now, when I was uh, working on this text and working on the sermon, uh, I, I was on my way home when I was done, and, and there was a fire that broke out. You've probably seen pictures or saw it from your balcony or whatnot. And it gave me a whole new thought about this, This verse, you know, I looked at the hill, the the smoke coming up over the hill, and I, I thought differently. I looked at those hills and said, where does my help come from? Where does our help come from with this fire? It gives you a whole new perspective on it. But I do think the ESV and the New American Standard and others render this best when they render it as a question of sorts. When the psalmist lifted up his eyes to the hills leading up to Jerusalem, he was reminded of the true source of his only real help in this world. His only real help is the Lord. And so in some ways, uh, that's what's called public worship. Think about the pilgrimage we're talking about in the text. He's going up the hill to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And it, when he does that, he's, he realizes his only hope isn't in the physical city of Jerusalem or in the temple, but what the temple points to is the fact that the Lord was his help. And so in some ways, we can liken public worship in the church every Lord's day Uh, In some ways, that should do the same thing for us. We don't have to take a pilgrimage to get to church, but every time we come to church, we should be reminded, even if it's not on a hill, so to speak, where our true help comes from. It comes from the Lord himself. And so every Sunday, you could say in some ways, should be a chance to recalibrate our senses, our vision, our perspective on life. And remember, be reminded of where our real hope and help is. Every Sunday it's an opportunity to be reminded of the things that matter most, your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, his watchful care over you and the sure hope of heaven and our true citizenship which is there. And so I think the psalmist would have you and I ask us ourselves the same question that he asked. It's written in the scriptures for our benefit. And so I ask this morning, where does your help come from? Where does your help come from? Where do you look first when facing trials and difficulties in this life. That tells you what you're really looking to and what you're trusting in. Where do you look first? Where do you look primarily when things go wrong and when dangers and trials come your way? Do you look to yourself? Many of us think we're sufficient for a lot of things. Do you look to yourself, to your own abilities, your own resources? Do you look to your bank account? As if all that money were the security that you might ever need. If that's all you needed, that will take care of you for the rest of your life. Do you look to politicians or the government in general as your ultimate help in time of need? Many do exactly that. Many in our country have made an idol of the government and of politicians. I think a lot of the rage you're seeing in our streets across our country is because of just that. It's almost like what Rob said about uh, the, the prophets of Baal. They're screaming and cutting themselves, crying out to their God, because their God is the government. Well, no, no, no idol can withstand that kind of a weight. No earthly government, no earthly politician can possibly withstand the weight of that expectation, because they are not God. They are not your ultimate help in time of need. Those things can't help but let you down. Just as the prophets of Baal did all the stuff they did and nothing happened, the idols of this world, all of them, will let you down when push comes to shove. Psalm 20, verse 7 says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 146, 3 says something similar. It gives us counsel. It says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. You know, God uses means, and we should never neglect to acknowledge that. God uses God uses people. God can use princes, he can use presidents, he can use governors, but they are not him. And we should not mistake them as if they had the ultimate power and were the ultimate source of our help. Many in our day, and maybe in every day, in all times, look everywhere, everywhere but to the Lord Jesus Christ for help. They look for help in every place under heaven for their source of help rather than looking to the one who made heaven and earth as the psalmist does here in verse 2. And that leads us to the second thing. The psalmist gives us his question. The second thing he gives us is his answer to that question. When he asks himself, where does he find his help? Look at verse 2. He says, my help, he's giving us his confession of faith, my help comes from where? Where? My help comes, I don't know about you, but my help comes from the Lord, he's saying. And and he even goes on to say, the Lord who made heaven and earth. He reminds himself of God's almighty power, that God is the one who made heaven and earth. You know, the almighty power of God is something we sing about, it's something we should think about, it should be something that's a great source of comfort for every believer's heart and mind. When you think of God in your time of trouble, we should remind ourselves of God's infinite power in creation. Charles Spurgeon writes this, he says, Jehovah, who created all things, is equal to every emergency. Heaven and earth are, are at his disposal of him who made them. Therefore, let us be very joyful in our infinite helper. We have an infinite helper in God. The one who made the heavens and the earth He's in control of the heavens and the earth, which means nothing in heaven and on earth can be too difficult for him to deal with. The psalmist also says in Psalm 46, 1 through 3, the psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling because god is a very present help in time of trouble we won't give we won't fear even if the earth gives way why because the one who's our help in trouble is the one who made the earth and the heavens if you have any one or anything other than or less than god himself as your help you cannot say that you won't fear even though the earth gives way but if god is your help you have an infinite helper to use Spurgeon's phrase. See how the psalmist would have us remind ourselves of God's infinite perfections, his mighty works, and his great power. The biblical doctrine of creation, you know, sometimes we, we wrongly think of it as some mere academic matter. Theologians treat it like it's some academic thing to play with and to argue about and to, to debate over. But the doctrine of creation is not just some academic matter. It's meant to be a great source of comfort and assurance to the believer in Christ. William Plummer writes this, he says, Let us study carefully, or let us carefully study the works of creation, in verse 2. They reveal the power and other perfections of God in a manner very important for us to apprehend. Nor is it possible ever to bring the heart to confide in God as we ought until we have a right conception of his omnipotence. If you don't have a right grasp of God's all power, his all-powerful nature, his omnipotence, you'll never trust in him. You'll never ultimately trust in him to take care of you against all things that you'll encounter in this world if you don't have a strong grasp of God's almighty power. And where do you learn best God's almighty power if not in creation? We, We confessed it in the Apostles' Creed this morning. I, I believe in God the Father, what? Almighty, and then what does it say? Maker of heaven and earth. How almighty is God? He spoke everything into existence with just a word. You know, scientists, uh, people much smarter than me, they can't begin to measure the universe. They try. There's so many zeros behind the numbers, it, it's just gibberish to me. It might as well be infinite, how great and wide and large the universe is. And we don't even think, when you think of that, the invisible world as well. God made all of that just by speaking it in an instant. How powerful is God that he can do that? Is the Lord Jesus your help? Think about what John chapter 1 says. He is the one through whom all things were made. And without him nothing was made that was made. John one three. That's the one. He is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us that he might live and die in our place to save us from our sins. The one through whom God the Father made all things this is the one who came and lived and died in our place to save us from our sin. He is the one that took the wrath of God upon himself and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. So that you and I would know that if we're in him, we will never be forsaken by God, no matter what comes our way. Well, the psalmist gives us his question, he gives us his answer, and then in verses 3 through 8, he gives us his exhortation or his encouragement. Uh, He he gives us that in those those verses. In other words, he doesn't write this psalm just to brag. He doesn't just write this psalm to tell us that his help is the Lord. I don't know about yours, but I've got the Lord helping. He writes this psalm to encourage us in the Lord that he is our helper as well, that we might learn to trust in the Lord as our helper and as our keeper. Notice that in verse 3, starting in verse 3, he switches gears. He goes from saying, where is my help? And my help is in the Lord. And he switches to the second person singular, you, the reader. He's talking to us. God, through him, is talking to us. He says, he who keeps you, verse 3, will not slumber. Now, the word keep or watch over or guard occurs six times in those last six verses. It's as if he's trying to tell us something. It's the theme of the psalm. It's the main theme of Psalm Psalm 121. In verse 5, the psalmist, I think, puts it best when he simply says, the Lord is your keeper. He is the one who watches over you. Now notice, he doesn't just say the Lord will provide help in time of trouble, although he does that. He doesn't just say that the Lord will provide protection in time of danger. He goes further than that. He says the Lord himself is your keeper. God is the one who keeps you and guards you. He is your help. He is himself our keeper. The Lord himself is the one who keeps watch over us in such a way, as Jesus says, that not a hair of our heads will perish. Luke twenty one eighteen. The Psalmist not only calls to mind and reminds us of God's work in creation, his almighty power, but he also thinks of or kind of alludes to an Old Testament uh, thing when he when he talks about his watchful care over us. What is he what does he allude to in our psalm here? He alludes to God's watchful care over the children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. Look at verses five and six. He says, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. Here it is. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Not only does the Lord our keeper ne- neither slumber nor sleep, but he also protects us day and night. That's the image that he's giving us here. That he himself, the Lord, is our shade, so that the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon be able to strike us at night as well. This, what does it call to mind when he talks about that? He, I think he's calling us to mind to think of, remember in the Old Testament, the wilderness wanderings, the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day. What did it do? It was the present, it symbolized the presence of God. When that cloud set out, what did they do? They set out. When it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. Because it was God guiding and leading them. But what else did it do? The pillar of cloud by day, wish we had that right now, gave them shade so the sun didn't attack them by day it didn't strike them by day and at night what did it do it was a pillar of fire it protected them from the cold it gave them warmth and light i think that's what the psalmist is kind of alluding to here in our text he's saying just like god did that for them god is going to do that and does do that for you even though your circumstance is not the same as theirs in verses seven through eight at the end of the Psalm he adds, The Lord, the Lord will keep you from all evil, he will keep your life, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Your coming in and going out isn't the same as the wilderness wanderings, but God protects and guards you in them in all of those things just, just the same. Now, does this mean is this psalm promising a trouble free life? It's easy to take it that way, isn't it? He says, you know, the Lord will keep you from all evil, nothing bad's gonna happen, that's how, that, you could take it that way, but is that really what he's saying? No. In fact, you know, if you think about it, it's saying just the opposite. What does the psalmist start off the whole psalm with? Where does my help come from? He's implying that both he and us, we are gonna need help in this life. Divine help. Help that nothing else and no one else can possibly give us. You know, Christians are not promised a carefree life. You've all probably figured that out dozens of times by your personal experience in this life and the faith. We're not promised a trouble-free life. We're not not promised a a pain-free life, frankly. But what we are promised in the Bible in Romans 8.28 is that God will make all those things, even your trials and tribulations in this life, work together for our good. That's what the psalmist is talking about here when he says he will keep you from all evil. God makes even the evil things in your life and mine work out, work together as part of a plan for our good. That's what the psalmist is telling us. He doesn't say there won't be danger, he says God will keep you through it. Now the message of this psalm, I think in a lot of ways, is the same as the message of Romans chapter 8, which is really just the message of the gospel of Christ itself. Uh, And that, what's the message of Romans 8? It starts off in verse 1 by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I ask this evening, or, or this morning, there I go again, Are you in Christ? I'll get it straight sometime by the end of this year. Are you in Christ by faith? Because if you are, there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ. It's the most important question you can ever ask yourself. Am I in Christ by faith? Then the Lord really is your helper, and there is no condemnation. Not only that, but Romans 8, towards the end of the chapter, Romans 8, 31 to 39, Paul goes on to say this. I think it's worth quoting at length, and I think it summarizes in a lot of ways what this psalm and others is teaching. Romans eight thirty-one and following, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, God's not holding out on us. If he gave us his son, there's nothing bigger than that than he can possibly give us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things, what? Not, not those things won't happen. He says, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is your helper. The Lord is your keeper. If God is for you, who can be against you? If he is your help. And Keeper, you are as secure as you could ever be. And nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.